Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from Psalm, sorry, from Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 6, Psalm 138, Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, and Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. If you could take on any project and be guaranteed of success, what would you do? Would you find a way to provide food for all people around the earth? End homelessness? End war? Save the environment? Maybe cure all forms of cancer? Or maybe something else entirely? I know such dreams are so hard to imagine, it seems ridiculous to even talk about them. Who has the audacity to say such things? Our modern fictional heroes, such as Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man are great in a fight, but even they couldn't make a dent in these issues. We live in a world where nothing is guaranteed apart from death and taxes. I can't guarantee that when I go to bed tonight, I will wake up in the morning. Nor can we guarantee that despite his love, that Jesus will answer our prayers in a way that we would like. Honestly, if he did, our world would be in chaos. Imagine everyone getting exactly what they prayed for. But I digress. Our gospel lesson today in Matthew 16 has one of those rare God-given guarantees. You can take it to the bank. That means we need to stop and digest this for a minute rather than fly past to the transfiguration that comes next. This guarantee is regarding the identity of the church, which is predicated on the identity of Christ. Just like last week, when Jesus was, in, was with his disciples in the region of Tyre and Sidon, he is once again in Gentile lands. That may be why we're not reading about large crowds gathering to receive healing or listen to him teach. Caesarea Philippi was a large city, roughly 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it is there that water comes out of a cave, which is one of the primary sources of the Jordan River. There's no clear reason why Jesus chose this location or time to pose the question to his disciples, but he asked them, who do men say the Son of Man is? Of course, the title Son of Man was how Jesus referred to himself, so the question is about his own identity. This was an impersonal and therefore safe question. Sort of like, what is the capital of Assyria? And he likely already knew what they were going to say because he had heard the rumors himself. At first glance, it might seem strange for the answers to all be reincarnations of dead people. Malachi 4.5 apparently prophesies the return of Elijah, and there was a lesser custom in some circles that Jeremiah would return someday. John the Baptist was only recently beheaded by King Herod shortly before the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. John had apparently so impressed some people that they could hardly believe that he had been executed. With the ministry of Jesus probably seeming a lot like John's, and without the benefit of the evening news or social media, it's easy to see how some could mistake Jesus for his cousin John. While all these answers were clearly incorrect, 
they did share in common the prophetic message and signs of Jesus. For most anyone, that would be a compliment. However, to say Jesus was a prophet or a good man completely misses the point. If he wasn't the eternal Son of God, the promised Messiah, then his sacrifice was in vain. His death could not pardon us from our sins if he was, not, if he was simply just a man. So we must immediately reject these answers, no matter how good they may sound on the surface. In order to get to the exciting guarantee regarding the identity of the church, we have to get the identity of Jesus right. Partially right won't cut it. Following the safe, impersonal question, Jesus now puts his followers on the spot. But who do you say that I am? This question is anything but safe. It's direct. It's personal. It involves a significant level of commitment to get it right. I imagine the other disciples were perfectly happy to let Peter take this one. What would you say? What if a non-believing friend asked you tomorrow, who is Jesus? Would you quote the Nicene Creed? Would you quote Peter here, or maybe some other passage in the Bible? With any of these, you would be fine as long as you believed it in your heart of hearts. Like I said, the answer requires commitment, because it's not like believing in the existence of gravity. If Jesus is who he claims to be, it requires a response from us. So Peter's answer wasn't merely like getting a multiple choice test question answer correct. It was his personal statement of faith. He believed it. Jesus acknowledged as much when he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus was saying that Peter's answer couldn't have come from studying human knowledge like a textbook, but rather from divine revelation. And Peter accepted it as truth. The response of Jesus echoes his words in Matthew eleven twenty seven: No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Peter knows Jesus because God revealed him to Peter. We should keep this in mind as we witness to others. There is no philosophical or theological argument that is guaranteed always to be accepted as proof of God's existence by any listener. There is no personal testimony, no matter how wonderful, that cannot be ignored. God must reveal Christ in people's hearts. And on top of that, they must accept what that revelation means for them, just like Peter did. They may not reject God's revelation out of lack of faith. It could be fear. A person on the verge of faith may walk away from Jesus because they know what it will cost to accept him. They know it's more than an intellectual acceptance. Believing in Jesus requires complete altering of one's priorities, which could mean major changes. 
that can be scary. Fear can be a strong motivator to walk away from Jesus before the roots of faith take hold. Now that we've established the true identity of Jesus, we can better understand the guarantee about the identity of his church. After Peter identifies Jesus, Jesus identifies Peter. In doing so, Jesus blurs the lines between Peter the individual and the church that Jesus is building. He does so both with the wordplay of Petros Petra, but then in saying rather confusingly, not that he would give the keys of the kingdom to the church, but rather to Peter. Jesus says, I will give you, and that's a singular you, implying Peter alone. Jesus goes on to say, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, that's a singular you. This is a hotly debated passage, with biblical scholars offering many ways to understand what Jesus is saying here. It would take far too long to weigh into all that, and in my opinion, for far too little benefit. But there are some important things that we can take away. First, we need to be careful about overly emphasizing the person of Peter. Keep in mind that Jesus praised him and said these things in response to Peter's statement of faith about the identity of Jesus. That means we cannot separate the, the person of Peter from his belief. Secondly, while Jesus used a singular you twice in his promises of authority, not long after this, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we find the promise of authority to bind and loose repeated, but this time clearly applying to the church as a whole. Lastly, if Peter had been exalted to a special position here, then why did the disciples ask Jesus in chapter 18, verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Clearly, Jesus' statement to Peter did not answer that question for them. What we do unequivocally learn from this passage is more about the nature of Jesus' mission. He was a church planter. He is building a new faith community. We need to be careful here because with the metaphor of the rock for the foundation, it could sound like Jesus is talking about building a physical church. This is completely foreign to what he is saying. It's an unfortunate trait of the English language that we use church to mean both the building and the congregation that gathers in the building. Jesus is talking about building a congregation of people. And here's where the amazing promise comes in. The Jesus congregation will never be defeated. Ultimate success is guaranteed. As I said earlier, how many other times in life do you get a guarantee like that? Regarding the Jesus congregation, the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Or a more literal translation says, the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. This is a powerful image because the gates of the underworld only let people in, but never leave, much like the Hotel California. Right? Death can never be reversed. 
No one who passes through the gates of the underworld ever comes back. But we know that with Jesus, that wasn't true. He did come back. The gates of Hades could not contain him. That is why the same is true of his congregation. The gates of the underworld have no power over us. That is an amazing promise. As I said in a previous sermon, that is the meaning of predestination. The church of our Lord will ultimately be victorious. Now like one of those corny limited time offer TV ads, but wait, there's more. Jesus gives another promise regarding his congregation. Verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. While it's challenging to figure out exactly what these promises mean, it's clearly a sign of divine authority given to the church. Jesus could be referring to what behaviors were allowed or disallowed in the church as they transition away from the law of Moses and worshiping in the synagogues. This would include social norms at that time, such as slavery and polygamy. It could also have to do with the authority to decide what texts would be considered part of the canon of Scripture, as Jesus knew the Hebrew Bible alone would be insufficient for his fledgling church. As we know from church history, it was the church consisting of congregations throughout the Roman world that decided from the ground up which texts would be included or excluded. This promised authority also probably included the right to determine who is welcome in congregational gatherings. As we know from the letters of Paul, there were troublemakers who had, been, had to be excluded from various congregations due to the harm they were doing to others. Related to that was the authority to decide who could receive communion. Lastly was the authority to determine the leaders of the church. Acts chapter 6 is a great example of the early church raising up a new generation of leaders to serve their congregations. Paul did the same as needed throughout his many missionary trips. Whether or not all this was meant by this authority that Jesus promised to Peter and by extension the church, these are certainly powers that the church developed out of necessity over the years to come. I think it's important to note that this is the first time the Greek word ecclesia, which we translate church, appears in Matthew. The church building mission has up to this point been a minor subplot. But now Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry, and his focus is starting to shift ever so slightly to what will remain once he has returned to the Father. Jesus is building something that in an earthly sense will outlast him. Back to my opening question. What would you do if you were guaranteed success? Or more accurately, how would you play the game if your team was guaranteed to win? If the Holy Spirit told you your soccer team was absolutely guaranteed to win its next game, would you play even harder or hardly at all? 
the guarantee of victory says nothing about how each individual player will do. So how should we play? This is a serious question. I suggest we play our best, not because it all rests on our shoulders, but for the love of the game. When the game is over, don't you want to know that you played your best? That, then, is how we should approach our life in Christ. It's not all on our shoulders, so don't put that on yourself. It will burn you out. But at the same time, live your life for the sheer joy of loving Christ and his people. If we're not the most joyful people around, then we've either believed the lie that it all depends on us, or we're just not engaged in the mission at all. If I'm honest, I tend to do the former. Not only do I tend to take it all on my shoulders, but I tend to think it's got to be done now. God didn't even speak to Abraham until he was 75, so I guess I can stop looking at my watch. As we prepare to receive communion, let us be reminded that Christ is central to what we are doing as his congregation. If we stray from that, then we will fail to be his church. Let us also receive the keys of the kingdom with humility as a stewarding trust. He, he has given us this trust, and we cannot let him down or future generations. And let us do all this with the joy that comes from knowing that even though we are bound to make mistakes, the Jesus congregation cannot be defeated. Let us go forth with boldness and watch with joy as the gates of hell flee in retreat. In the name of the Father, and of the Son.